After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your co-host today, Becky Shrimpton. Cameron Maitland is not with me today. He has tapped out in favor of a fellow Albertan, the filmmaker, the writer, the director, the guy who's been on our show before talking about all things Albertan and great films. We've got Mike Peterson with us today. How you doing, Mike? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks, Becky. My pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun. So glad to be here and then we have with us another prairie filmmaker <laughs> lowell wolf cop dean hi hi thanks for having me thanks for coming on now you of course are a uh, reginian you're from regina is that correct i'm from all over saskatchewan actually i'm from saskatoon and prince albert and regina but i, I guess whatever's the most fun to say is usually regina okay <laughs> is it reginian is that the term for someone who's from regina reginian you want to know crazy i have no idea i've been here and no one we just kind of skim over that because maybe it's too awkward or weird to say but uh, <laughs> reginian Sounds weird. I don't know. Doesn't it, though? I don't know. It's weird. Because Calgary's Calgarian, right? Definitely, yeah. yeah. Okay, all right. I'm always curious as to what people call it. Like, Torontonian sounds stupid to me. I don't know. Especially because you have to pronounce the second T. <laughs> that's right. That's that's supposed to show that you're a phony, right? <laughs> exactly. When we decided we wanted to do a Prairie Filmmaker thing, immediately uh, Mike was like, oh, we got to get Lowell on the show because not only is he from the Prairies, he recently made a movie about Saskatchewan and a post-apocalyptic wasteland that was there. And I was like, oh, he was on the show talking about Supergrid. We need to bring him on. So, Lowell, let's just start out with asking you, how did growing up in the prairies influence your filmmaking? I think uh, in too many ways to count, probably. I, I think the biggest determining thing about Saskatchewan for me for film is the landscape and the community. Like, it's such a small, tight-knit, uh, I'm sure very similar to Alberta film community that you basically, everyone is immediate family. There is very few people to work with. So, you, you either fight or fall in love with everybody. And the landscape is so, like, everyone's like, oh, it's so beautiful. It's like a, a Hallmark movie, you know, with the sunsets and the wheat fields. Myself, I, I see it as, like, a great place for, like, a gothic horror landscape. My dream has always been to make, like, a long series of, you know, varying tones, but genre films in Saskatchewan. And, you know, we, we've started and we've had done it to a mixed degree, but uh, I, I hope to not have made my last Saskatchewan film. Why, why do you say your last one? What's going on there right now? Uh, well, we have lost our tax credit. This is years ago, but it's it's just getting uh, increasingly harder and harder to make feature films in Saskatchewan. I mean, I would even be hesitant to say we have an industry here anymore. It's it's micro budgets at best and, and a little bit of documentary television. But we don't really have a system here that supports any kind of feature film above a million dollars. And, uh, you know, as you know, you want to make movies, you want to grow. And horror films are often done around hovering around the one million uh, level. But both Wolf Cop films actually ended up being Ontario co-productions because we just couldn't do what we needed to do with that budget level. And uh, so for me, I want to grow. I want to, I don't want to make $1 million movies for the rest of my life. So it kind of meant I had to look beyond Saskatchewan. So would you guys say, uh, both for Alberta and Saskatchewan, that it's a good training ground for people in that you can kind of make the movies you want to make. You, you get used to being able to work with a team and a close-knit team and, and figure out the initial concepts of it and then move to a larger market? I think it's 100% region incentive-based. I mean, I hate to say it, but what I've learned in the last few years is it is a system of tax credits and incentives. And if 
if you don't have one that is film friendly, it dries up very, very quickly. Now, Lowell, you made a couple of festival favorite films, played very, very well to large audiences, Wolf Cop and Supergrid, but they're also very accommodating to the VOD market of people being like, Wolf Cop, check out this poster. I have to watch this. Um, very talkable on social media. Do you think that was a big influence on how you were able to make that a co-pro and actually sell that concept? I'm guessing it makes it easier sometimes. I mean, I actually, I never know. I'm, I'm just a lowly writer-director. <laughs> Mike would have the producer-style questions. But uh, for me, I think I always gravitate towards high-concept, big ideas, and things that I think, in my opinion, should be pretty sellable because they're things I want to watch. I definitely prescribe to the belief that you should make a movie that you want to watch, not try and make a movie for a certain audience. And with the Wolf Cop films, yes, it's ridiculous, and you, the whole pitch is in the title. But for me, I was just really dying to see it. And so I think that helped uh, get financing and I guess sell Canada on, on the idea and, and then obviously bring on Ontario as well as Saskatchewan for sure. And, and did that do well in the States and stuff as well? I mean, it's so hard to tell. I know that it, it uh, had a release in the States and like the second one, by the time we got to another Wolf Cop, it was playing in quite a few theaters even in the States. It's like the Alamo Drafthouse uh, did screenings and double features. So I have to believe if we did a sequel, it must have done okay. To me, it's always been a Canadian success story. The fact yeah. that you were able to make that and make a sequel and it's even people that haven't seen the film usually have heard of it. Yeah, is, that's the mark. Know, yeah, but does that actually help you in Canada to be a filmmaker? For me, I don't know if it has. I think a big thing is being in Saskatchewan has made it pretty hard for me. I'm hoping that'll open up now that I'm a little more uh, transient. But uh, also, I think when you do two of anything, like the blessing is you could say, well, I did something that got a sequel, but the curse is then everyone I meet is like, oh, so this is a, a gross out uh, silly horror comedy. And, and not everything I'm writing is that at all. You know, like, yes, I have a couple more like that, but I also have some straight up dramas and some thrillers and uh, some other things. So it's you get pigeonholed pretty quickly, I think, in this industry. Do you think that's Canadian specific? It's just like, oh, we know we're going to call up Lowell to do these weird gross out things because he's just going to do a really good job of it. I don't know. I don't know if it's Canadian specific, um, but I definitely... Definitely, I, I guess that's just my landscape. So I do feel as I move around, everyone assumes whatever I'm doing next is a uh, uh, cop or wolf related. <laughs> but uh, the more I get to talk to them, I think the more they get to see that there are other ideas. So I, I guess it's like it's a blessing and a curse, but I'll take it. I'd rather that than uh, having never made uh, even one wolf cop. Well, let's talk about Wolf Cop for a second. So am I incorrect in thinking this was the one that you won a contest to get part of the funding for this? No, you are correct. The Coles Notes version of the story is we. I was heavily inspired by Sam Raimi and Evil Dead, as many indie horror filmmakers are. It's like mythic, the, the stories of them making the movie in their gymnasium and all of their friends being cast and crew and after we lost our tax credit uh, in Saskatchewan, the whole film industry was basically unemployed. And uh, I was like, well, I'll put everybody to work, even if I don't have money yet. So basically everybody, the whole industry came together and helped me shoot a concept trailer for Wolf Cop. And I already had the script ready. Uh, you know, we had like a crew of 40, like a real deal film crew. And we shot a two minute pitch video. And I was just going to go out uh, with my producing partners uh, with the, the idea and the script and try and meet rich dentists and anybody who would give us money to make the film. And we were aiming for half a million at best, we thought. Around the time we did that, there was something called Cinecoup, which was an online, uh, I guess you could call it a contest for indie film. And they they put out a call for, if you had a trailer and a script, you could enter and anybody across Canada would get to vote on what films got made. And we had all the pieces. Of course, we were like hesitant and didn't know what it was all about, but guaranteed uh, release in Cineplex theaters. So 
I you know I go to I go to a movie every week, and I was like dreaming about seeing one of my movies in that that theater since I, I was a kid. So uh, we had to enter, and uh, many months later, and lots of hustling and dancing and singing for our supper, uh, we we got selected and we got to make Wolf Cop. Something I love so much about this film that I also love about Mike's films is that the visuals in it are so good. Like the special effects look fantastic on the limited budget that you guys had. Uh, it's serious body horror. You got some Cronenbergian stuff going on here. And even the way you've edited all the action sequences, everything looks really tight and very Hollywood. Like it's all very clean. How are you able to achieve that level of specificity and uh, I guess good goodness uh with your budget what what did you invest in that uh we just kill ourselves <laughs> to do it for me it's a lot of crap like i storyboard uh, everything heavily because we only have 17 days wolf cop and even the sequel wolf cop 2 only had 17 days uh budgets of around a million canadian so it's there's no real room for error so if an effect works like for example you mentioned the uh the body horror and the the practical effects which i also love uh, but the scary part is, you know, we practice, we rehearse, we storyboard everything. But on the day, if a gag doesn't work, we get two takes because to reset something like, say, a head exploding um, takes half an hour. So you have to really want it or you have to have some, you have to be able to pivot and shoot something else while you wait for them to reset the head. And sometimes it doesn't work. And you, we just kind of had a pact with the effects people where we said, you know, you get two takes at best if the first one works great. If the second one doesn't, that's it. The gag is dead. And we swing the camera over to a wall and throw a bucket of blood at it. You know, so you'll notice anytime, if you ever rewatch the movie, anytime you just see blood hitting a wall, that was a gag. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's uh, you just have to move fast and be prepared, I find. And uh, I find it exhausting, frankly. It's like a marathon. And especially after Super Grid and Wolf Cup 2 back to back, whatever I do next, I don't want to have. Uh, a spreadsheet of like 75 body horror gags because it's crazy. You want to do a one-room drama with uh, Gordon Pinson and Maggie Smith and they just generally walk in and out of the room while the camera stays stationary, right? You know what? I would love to do that if there was some kind of really messed up twist. Uh, <laughs> the way, you know, obviously the surface version of that doesn't interest me, but uh, you know, if uh, if it's a time travel thing and they're both there to kill each other, I'm interested. <laughs> but do you find, I always find this, Lowell, is that... You always set it up for two or three kind of, you know, setups for those things, the, the effects. But yeah. you almost always get it in the first one. And I think it's because everyone knows that you, know, yeah. you can't really afford it. But it almost always works out in the first one. But if you only had one, then it would never work out in the first one. So you always have to prep two or three. Yeah, I find like you you have to. And, and the biggest lesson, and it's hard to learn, is I find to not be greedy. And if you do get it on that first take, to just move on and trust that you have it and uh, that the chip won't somehow malfunction. But uh it's true. You know, like if you don't get in the first, my heart kind of th sinks because I know like I have a pretty good feeling that the second take might not work either. Can I ask you a question about your first film? Sure. Yeah, um, I have never seen it and I don't know where I get it. Maybe it's more easily available than I think, but um, I've never heard you talk about it in all the times we've talked. Do you mean 13 Eerie? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, 13 Eerie is on uh, iTunes and you can find it there and it's, you know, I'm sure DVD somewhere, but I could do a whole podcast just on 13 Mary, to be honest. It was a, a really crazy experience. I'm, I'm surprised we never talked about it. And uh, it was my first film. Prior to that, I had only done like $500 short films and little zombie you know, movies with my friends. And I was trying to get a feature made and I couldn't. I couldn't finance it. No producers would take me on because, you know, I was, I was in my 20s and I had only done $500 horror movies in Saskatchewan. This company in Saskatchewan, 
was actually making a $3.5 million zombie film with Roger Christian directing. He's uh, the guy who did Battlefield Earth, if you remember. And he I did, do remember. And he did, uh, he was the art director on uh, Alien and Star Wars. You know, he's the guy behind the lightsaber. So, so uh, I find out this company is uh, making his movie, his zombie movie. And because the company is friendly with me, they say, come be his assistant. And so I actually was hired on that movie as Roger's assistant. And uh, it was a telefilm production, uh, Don Carmody produced, uh, Mind's Eye. It was a, a pretty big Saskatchewan zombie movie. Basically what happens is about two weeks prior, literally two weeks prior to production, Roger was unable to direct it because uh, he wasn't a Canadian citizen yet. And he was, you know, working to get that underway. But as a telefilm production has to have a Canadian director, as we all know, it's even more specific now in 2019. But that was a big condition. So they had to find a Canadian director real quick. And as Roger's assistant, I had storyboarded the entire film for him as an exercise. He knew I wanted to direct my own film. So he said, I challenge you to storyboard the whole film how you would do it. So I literally had an example, a full book <laughs> of what I would do with the film. And two weeks out, they lost their director. So they took a risk on me, and it was the hardest experience I've ever had making a film. It took me years to get over, I think, some of the emotional and uh, mental scars. But because honestly, I didn't even know terms like making your day uh, at that stage. And I went from directing $500 short films to a $3.5 million zombie film with the cast like Catherine Isabel, uh, Michael Shanks, Jesse Moss, Brennan Fair, Brennan Fletcher. So it was, uh, I like to say I was baptized in blood and it was a great experience, but also uh, insane. So by the time I got to do Wolf Cop, I was like, I know how to move efficiently, let me say. Wow, that's wild. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. And that's kind of the dream, isn't it? Of like, yeah, I've been making these videos for YouTube and all of a sudden I'm getting to make the new Star Wars movie. Like that's kind that's, of the equivalent. That's the Hollywood dream is you're working in the mailroom and you get pulled up by the producer to direct the movie. You, you did it. Well, it's like it's definitely a dream, but it's also a blessing and a curse, I say, because um, I, I mean, again, I, I'm sure I don't know how you work, Mike, but uh, I came up making short films and the short films were uh, driven and created by me. So to have my first film, I almost would have rather this sounds ridiculous, maybe, but I almost would have rather done the hundred thousand dollar film that I wrote and directed and developed and worked with my friends, because to go from like making stuff with your friends on your own to suddenly making a giant film with a crew who doesn't know you. And frankly, a lot of them don't respect you because they've never met you and they just know you're the kid who's thrown in you know, to like do the last inning, you're like, Jesus, what have I gotten myself into? But I will say, I honestly think it positively impacted everything I did. The lessons I learned uh, working with actors uh, and even like how I wanted to run my set because it wasn't really, it never really felt like my set. I felt like I was a guest on someone else's movie. So um, it became really important to me moving forward to have a really cool um, laid back atmosphere and an atmosphere of we're all rookies here. Let's just have fun and make it because I definitely felt like just scared shitless, frankly, on my first film. I feel like that on everyone. <laughs> yeah. Well, so there are moments for sure. But now, like, I, I feel like that one taught me so much. I, I probably owe like most of my directing career to 13 Aries, you know, like every day we were doing the craziest things that I just thought were normal. And like, oh, every movie will be three to four million dollars and I'll get to <laughs> bust and blow things up and and then, you know, suddenly you're back with your friends and like 50 cents. But let me ask you about the storyboarding, because you're a very visual filmmaker and Mike, you are as well. I know there's a lot of filmmakers now who don't do their own storyboarding. They hire assistants. What value do you guys think being able to storyboard your own films brings? Uh, what do you say, Mike? 
Well, my storyboards, no one can understand them usually, so they're more for me. So what I do is I'll, I do a couple of different things, depending on the type of scene it is. I'll usually create two or three very basic stick figure drawings that will capture what I think are the important shots in that scene or visual moments so that I know what the other things are that are around that. And then at least the DP and the other people that I know, I can at least have a touchstone that I can use to describe it with after I've already given them a bunch of photos and other references. So I think it's really important for the director at least to know that and be able to communicate and however they do it. But I, I can't tell you how many times I've shown people storyboards and I know they don't know what they're looking at because <laughs> it's a bunch of scribbles and stuff. So it, so it almost gets down to like the graphic shape of an image and what's light and what's dark and you know what what is in what part of the third of the frame. I've been drawing my whole life, so I always, I'm very insecure about my storyboards too, but the more, the further on I get, the more I think they're actually okay because they aren't uh, like Mike stick figures. You know, I, I shade them, I do a little bit more. I, I It's very cartoony, my style, but um, basically if I have the time, that's my preference is to do it all myself because it forces me to think of it. And, uh, and honestly, uh, on the budgets I'm working on, it's going to change anyway, you know? So I, it's more just for me to figure out what I need to do and show everyone that I have uh, hopefully a persistence of vision. And then I kind of springboard off and I don't usually reference it on set unless it's an action sequence. Um, but beyond that, if I don't have time, I love hiring like a, a really talented storyboard artist. Like I, there was a guy from Saskatchewan named Joel Hustack, who is a, a really good artist and he did a lot of boards for Supergrid and they look so much better than anything I would do. But again, only when I don't have the time to do it myself, because I think it's better directly pours out of the brain, even if it is a stick figure. And uh, and one cool thing that I ended up doing on 13 Erie, which I recommend anybody do if they don't think they're a good artist, uh, is take pictures of toys. Um, I actually started doing that even just like with your iPhone. Um, for 13 Erie, I had to make the board so fast. Um, we basically got like a Barbie house and i got about 20 action figures like arnold schwarzenegger and stuff and i just put pictures based on where i would put the camera and that way i could actually even have lighting you know i could have light sources and show exactly how i wanted it to look and then i just brought them in photoshop and printed off a book and uh when in a pinch that works really well i've got those little action figures too that i use to draw perspective sometimes those little guys that you can artist models that you can use for storyboarding they're great yeah, yeah. Even for yourself to figure out a camera move or something. Yeah, and you can do it now. There's like really no excuse with iPhones and you know little iPhone mounts. So you could. I I would definitely be hesitant to enter any kind of effect or action sequence uh, without boarding it first. Uh, conversational stuff. I do a stick figure thing at at most, uh, just so I know or the DP knows. But um, but by and large, you know, I I'm only boarding things that I think are need to be disseminated through the whole crew and so everybody was not afraid on the day of wait how are we doing this yeah I've, I've got a whole bunch of strategies i've figured out over the last little while that i like to use but like overheads i think are the most useful tool because it really just tells people roughly where the camera is going to be set up and that's kind of what the crew needs to know and then yeah. you might put yeah. some lensing information the other thing i have started doing is building basically i've got like a you know those slide uh holders that you put into binders mm -hmm. So after every day, I'll get stills from every scene that I've shot, and then I carry those with me, and then I use those as references when I'm trying to build uh, the sinew between scenes and stuff like that in case I you know, haven't 
remember to shot or if I'm just figuring out how I want to enter a different scene. Yeah, I've never done that, but that's a good idea. Now, I bring this up because we asked you to bring another film of someone who influenced you, and you picked Vincenzo Natale, who is famous for his storyboarding. He started out as a storyboarder, working on stuff like Ginger Snaps and Blood and Donuts for the CFC. Um, he did a ton of animations all the way back into the Nelvana uh, era, working on Adventures of Tintin and the Beetlejuice animation and Babar. And he is famous for creating these incredible lookbooks for his movies, which are all absolutely visually stunning. Yeah, that's actually uh, what, you know, when you reached out to me about doing this and you're like, well, you know, who do you want to talk about? I was literally, when I saw that email, also I had another browser window uh, open and I was looking at his new webpage. And uh, I don't know if you, you're aware of it, but he, yeah, he's got uh, VincenzoNatale.com or whatever it is. Yeah, dot, dot com. And on that site, he has everything from his films. So it's like a film geek's dream uh, for Cube and Splice and the new one uh, in the tall grass. He he has his scripts. He has storyboards. Uh, so it was really cool to because directing is usually very isolated. I find um, um, jobs so you never really have many reference points except for like what you see on DVD extras or audio commentaries or interviews. So to get to go there and literally see all of his storyboards and all of his pitches and treatments, uh, um, it's it's pretty great. And it actually made me feel a little bit better about myself for like my my boards too because his boards are very simple and clean and to the point and. When you look at a board and then watch the movie the same day, you really see uh, see what he pulled off. So what was your first introduction to him and his films? Was it Cube? Was it Cube? Of course it was Cube. <laughs> like uh, infamous for like a, an example of not just how to make, I think, a, a breakout film, but uh, a, a breakout Canadian genre single location film, which is uh, done in a smart way. You know, it was a huge inspiration. It's an awesome film. Yeah. And, and CFC funded it and then they never really funded another genre film after that i don't think interesting it always surprised me because it was the very first one through the canadian film center uh film program it was not <laughs> blood and donuts which was also a, uh, a genre film is the very first one that's right so they did start out with genre film uh, and when i talked to justine white about the about the cfc program she said that they originally started with genre films because those are the easiest ones that were that they could sell and get on the festival market yeah oh. i think it still is you know, Canada doesn't, we have such a rich genre history, but we don't always celebrate it as much as I think we should. I think that's part of the problem with telefilm is telefilm doesn't really pick up those programs. <laughs> it's all about what are the prestige dramas that we can do. Jane Eastwood has this fantastic phrase that she refers to most Canadian film as, as the long trudge in the snow towards death. It's like 90% <laughs> of Canadian film. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's that's about right. Um, but obviously, Vincenzo came on the scene, brought out Cube uh, in 1997, followed that up with with Splice, then he's been doing um, some of the best genre television in terms of visuals. I mean, we're talking Hannibal. He was on uh, high visual things. And to be able to translate that kind of visual into long form television when you're working super fast on a budget is just mind boggling to me. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I, I mean, I think like he, you know, it's amazing to me that he hasn't done more feature films, but he's obviously gotten to work a lot and consistently. Well, we want to talk a little bit about the Netflix film In the Tall Grass, which is available right now on Netflix. Nice to have a accessible Canadian film for once that you don't have to get from a back alley directly from the director burned on DVD. Mm-hmm. Done that. <laughs> How, what did you guys think of this one? How was it for you? I liked it. And I, uh, I was immediately, uh, was saw obviously if you are familiar with his work, I was like, I wonder how this is going to fit into his kind of style and filmography, but, uh, it felt very him right away. Uh, I mean, it's obviously, uh, you look at Cube and you look at uh, the single location thing, you know, you get a few minutes in, you're like, oh, man, they're already in the grass. I wonder 
uh, if we're going to get out of the grass. And so, like, I mean, spoiler alert, a lot of the damn movie is them walking around in the tall grass. And uh, but it's cool how I just always find it fascinating how he can keep you in a minimal movement situation, but still keep it interesting. And obviously the budget of this was much bigger. And, uh, you know, there were some crazy VFX shots and uh, really unique things that uh, I know he's been trying to make it for, I think, quite a few years and that he wouldn't have got to do at a lower budget level. So that makes me think it's pretty cool that Netflix puts it up. The beginning is like really tension filled, really excellent filmmaking. I mean, the visuals through the whole thing are amazing. Cast is all good. Um, but it felt like it fell into some predictable tropes around the halfway mark for me anyways. I enjoyed it though. You know, it's a high end, high end genre filmmaking, which is always exciting to see. And I do like his work overall. I'm a fan of him. Yeah, me too. And I don't usually like to be blunt Netflix films. I feel like most Netflix films don't feel fully focused. They feel like half baked to me. But to me, this is one of the better ones. This one is interesting because it feels like so looking at the origins of it, like you said, he had the rights for this for a while. It's a short uh, a short story novella written by both Stephen King and his son, Joe Hill, which dinner conversations in that household must be fascinating. There's a bunch of these short stories that are now getting made into films because apparently there was a big auction off of all of the rights for these short stories. All of, the, all of them came up at the same time to be able to purchase. All of a sudden get access to the rights and throw Stephen King on your poster. And this seems like it has a direct connection to the upcoming Lock and Key series, which was written by Joe Hill. Um, Leza, Leza, I think Lazla, I think that's how you pronounce her name. Adil Oliveira, who plays Becky, she's in Lock and Key. Vincenzo Natale is directing a whole bunch of it. And the writer, uh, or one of the writers of this also wrote some of the episodes of Lock and Key as well. So I'm almost wondering if this was like just a, like a trial run or they're like hey we've got this do you guys want to come over and do this quick we'll fund it and then we'll go you can go back over and finish working on lock and key maybe they're going full on marvel cinematic universe with Stephen king <laughs> <laughs> well they may be this thing is full of easter eggs like when they're in the parking lot christine is in the parking lot and there's a few other oh, really? yeah yeah the nosferatu car right. is in the parking lot all of them are in all i didn't of them get there. that either holy smokes oh, that's cool. yeah i'm trained to look for this stuff now sorry guys <laughs> nosferatu was the scary Scariest book I've read in a long time. Holy smokes. That book scared the shit out of me. I didn't make it through. It bothered me too much. I'm like, I don't want my good guys to die. I can't handle it. Sorry, spoiler alert for a book that's been out for a decade. Deal with it. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to rewatch it and check out all those those reps. How do you guys think he's grown as a filmmaker between Cube and In the Tall Grass? Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, uh, I, I mean probably visually he's uh but i mean again i don't know if it's like limitations versus getting more money and more time and all those things i don't know what my what i actually what i kind of like most about him is he feels very consistent it feels like you know it's not like he's just hammering the same one note over and over but he's exploring very similar ideas and themes people making similar mistakes or learning similar lessons uh i i actually really liked uh, splice so so it's it's really fun for me to to see him taking on these kind of bizarre sci-fi tense horror films you know like the merge of sci-fi and, and horror is, is what i think he he really kills all the time there's something that he has with groups of people that aren't families into families and messing with yeah. them as much as he can he definitely has like an ongoing theme i think in all of his work or almost all of his work that 
does some version of that. Totally. It's, yeah, it's people playing God and people trying to create their own families <laughs> in pretty much every film. Yeah, so that feels fairly consistent. There's also, in this one, uh, the original short story does not have a time loop. It's just people getting stuck and lost in the grass. And so they, they added that, which is interesting because his previous film, Haunter, also involved a time loop. Yeah, I love time loops. <laughs> I think it's good that he puts them in. I feel like uh, time travel is... Uh, something I love in film and uh, maybe that's why I gravitate towards uh, his stuff too. I just find it so challenging because for me, I get very heady about stuff. I used to date like a major uh, tech geek and uh, he was all about primer and would always be trying yeah. to like talk about it and figure out how it worked. Um, and I was like, you know, the director and writer has literally said it's nonsense, right? You're not going to make <laughs> sense of it. It's just random stuff he thought up when he was high. So <laughs> so I'm always fascinated by when people talk about how much they love time travel movies because I think they're the hardest genre to have them make sense without the concept of paradox. Unless you're directly addressing paradox. Yeah, I think it's like, a, uh, I, I see time travel films and, and a lot of sci-fi as sleight of hand and magic. It's like, I think you, it should never be the point of the film. It should serve the story and uh, it should serve whatever the characters need to learn in their lessons. But, uh, you know, I, I like time travel films that like basically try and go all into it. I like when they try and dumb it down for you and, you know, in Back to the Future, they literally hold figurines and say, this happens if you do this. Uh, but then, you know, you could also say uh, it's, works when some films just basically say don't try and think about it you'll get a headache i think whatever is right for the tone it, you know hot tub time machine sure just make it work for you how much of that is just making an incredibly effective world so i think about say Supergrid, where it's like all right we're already knee deep in the middle of the apocalypse and this is what needs to happen next and this is how we move the story forward from this point and then going back to something like cube where even outside we don't know what the rules of this world are and they have to figure them out as they go along and that's the learning technique i i say don't say uh any more than you have to because in every film i've done I end up having to add some kind of ADR or uh, title screen narration, like the opening of Supergrid basically sets up the world. Um, and these are things that I usually against or not wanting to put in. But then when you, you do the first couple screenings and people are like, I didn't get these two things. And you're like, okay, we got to be clear. So that's another thing I'm trying to do moving forward is explain too much and then pull it out in the end. <laughs> Mike, how about for yourself? How important do you think this is? It's always better, I think, to have a little bit more because you can't go back and get it again. Or you're in the scene with the actors and you're like, you know what? I don't need this. Let's get just get rid of it. And, you know, you can make the call on the day. But I always think it's better to have a tiny bit more in the script because you won't ever, you can always cut stuff out, but you can't add it later. Uh-huh. I agree fully. Um, and it doesn't really take much more time or whatever to do it. And sometimes when people are reading it, there's no uh, or there's less miscommunication in terms of what you want them to understand. And if they understand that, you can actually get the thing that you want without saying it. Well, let's get yeah. to our final question, which is how do you think Vincenzo specifically influenced your work? And can you point to a moment in your work that you kind of took from what he does? For me, I don't think there's anything specific, but I would say the biggest influence is uh, inspiration. You know, I mean, I know that there's like whole generations of people out there who said like, oh, I can go out and with a camcorder and make, make an indie feature because Kevin Smith made Clerks. And uh, for me, I feel like uh, seeing Cube and, and hearing, you know, the, the mythology around it and how it happened in Toronto and how it, you know, happened through the center, a bunch of people coming together to make a film and then seeing the impact it has and where it goes around the world. I think that to me was like, okay, it's not impossible. Even if circles I'm traveling in don't seem interested in horror or comedy, or sci-fi, 
doesn't mean I can't make it and have it go out into the world. I think he provided inspiration for a lot of Canadian filmmakers, and I'm sure beyond that, probably pretty close to a perfect kind of one room. Yeah. Uh, one, you know, one, like a chamber piece uh, genre film. I, I don't know. I can't think of one off the top of my head that would be better. Okay. So how do people find you and your work, Lol? I'm pretty easy to find. I would say on Twitter, my handle is Lolofilm, L-O-L-O-F-I-L-M. And, uh, that's also my website, lolafilm.com. I don't really have much up there right now, but um, yeah, other than that, just Google Wolf Copper Supergrid. That's uh, what I've done so far, and uh, always trying to hustle and get the next one going. How about you, Mike? How do people find you? Facebook, I think, under Mike Peterson. <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm not great at social media. And then you can find uh, Harpoon Movie on Twitter, and Harpoon is the latest one I produced. I think it's the best-reviewed Canadian film of the year, 98% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. So, you know, if you get a chance to check that out, too, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. It's great. I can endorse it 100%. And if you want to see my endorsements, you can find them on my Twitter. That is Atla Shrimpton. That's the masculine shrimp over there. Follow the podcast at RCM Pod. I think that's just about everything. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks so much for all your support with Canadian films. We love it. Yes, thank you to you both. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.